This time on Behind the Scenes, we're going to the United States to chat with a gentleman who is, frankly, the busiest and most successful designer in the history of theatre and television. He has designed more Las Vegas spectaculars than anybody else, and he was the youngest scenic designer ever to work in the West End, on Broadway, and in television. In fact, his name has rolled across TV screens the world over, having designed countless sets for comedy, music, and chat shows, newsrooms, award galas, not forgetting the biggest blockbusters on television, namely Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, American Idol, and America's Got Talent, making him the first British designer to really conquer Hollywood. Add to that cruise ships and theme parks. Well, it's a long way from his days as a lad growing up in Lancashire. Now in his 40th year as a set designer, let's go live to Las Vegas and say hello to the insanely talented, multi-award winning Mr. Andy Wormsley. Welcome, sir. Wow, Colin, what a, what a hype, man. Can we uh, come to an arrangement that any time I walk in a room, you, co you come in about 20, 30 seconds before me, do that intro, and then I'll burst through the doors with confetti cannon. What <laughs> you said was true there, but I, uh, I definitely would argue with you about the most successful designer, blah, blah, blah. But I'll, t I'll take the intro. It was very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, hand on heart, cards on table. I first re remember, yeah, I remember your name first mentioned when I was working on a quiz show at the BBC with the great Paul Daniels, every second counts. I was sitting in the dressing room with Howard Huntridge, and Paul said, I'm going to start using this young designer called Andy Wormsley. He's only a teenager. And what would that would have been in the mid-'80s? I mean, I know those dressing rooms very well because I actually went several times with Paul, even younger than that. And I would sit in that dressing room with maybe with you, but with, certainly with John Junkin, yeah, and uh, and then Paul would say to me, "Oh, you know, just have a wander around, go around all the studios and have a look." Um, yeah. so, but this, what you're talking about, was a bit later, I think. I'm trying to remember his two game shows. He did every second counts. He did every second counts, which I did, and then he moved on to Wipeout, which I also did. Yeah, uh, and I think it was probably Wipeout that uh, that maybe that uh, that you came into with Junkin because Junkin joined me on Wipeout. Really, right? So you may have been in that dressing room that I was sat in as a as a little you know, relatively little kid at that time. Well, you know, we, we, in a way, you know, to be truthful, Andy, we're, we're kindred spirits because I started very young as well. Uh, I was, and I, you know, right up until this, I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. I was always the boy, you know, <laughs> so right. someone in his late 50s and early 60s. I was always the boy and I never got out of that mindset. Yeah. Um, and uh, so how did you get? How did you know Paul? How did you manage to make contact with him to get him interested in your designs for tricks and and sets and stuff? Well, I'll go back a, a little before that, if if I may. But so my, I come from this show business. You know, they would say over here, dynasty. And I should apologise because obviously most of your listeners are British, so I may occasionally slip into not an American accent, but some you know Americanisms. I'll try not to, but. But anyway, yeah, so I come from the show business dynasty, dynasty, and um, my great-grandfather was Fred Wormsley, who was quite a famous comedian long, long time ago, obviously, mm. on the radio. He had records. He did lots of summer seasons in, in Blackpool, which is where I'm from. 
And um, my grandfather played stand-up bass in an orchestra. My grandmother played piano in the silent movies. My mum was a fire eater, had a speciality act, and she's, she did summer seasons and panto and television. My dad was Sid Francis, comedian, who most people won't remember, but he was on the Johnny Hamp Granada comedian show. And of course, he also did panto and summer seasons and television. So I was really in that immersed in that world, the variety world, since I was literally a toddler. They said, you know, they would park me in my pram. I nearly said stroller, but in my pram in the wings. And I would like stare up at the colored lights. And so I was really in it from, from almost from birth backstage. And so I grew up with all their friends who were, you know, escapologists and Ventax and jugglers and singers and musicians and magicians. And so, of course, one of those people was Paul Daniels. And I'm talking way before he was famous. And a lot of people don't know about Paul, but he he had a greengrocer's van. So this was in the days of the big club circuit. There was an amazing club circuit in the UK, which I think must have all, all gone at this point. Um, I know one of the real famous ones was Batley Variety Club, but there was a bunch of them. Almost every major city had one. And all these performers worked this circuit. They could do it all winter, then go into panto, then do a bit more, then go into summer season and pepper some television if they were lucky in between. So anyway, so Paul would sell fruit and vegetables from the back of his van in the day, wherever he happened to be, let's say it was Batley. And then he was also the accountant for all the acts because he was brilliant with with numbers um so he would do all the acts accounts and then of course in the evening he would do his act so he i mean the guy was actually a genius and i know he had sort of a bad well not sort of but he did have a somewhat of a bad reputation which i always thought was unfair because i'd known him way before he was famous and and deserved really deserved to be famous but um so anyway yeah so he watched me grow up literally watched me grow up and as did a lot of other people like Keith Harris. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of those people who were not yet famous. So we saw them become famous, which was an interesting experience as well. And um, so, yeah, he, he I mean, just to go back even more before I come back to Paul. So I'd grown up in, in that environment. And also every time my mum or dad would do a TV show, I would go with them and and you know, just watch and observe. And I loved being in TV studios and I was very into the cameramen. That seemed the coolest job in television to me. And especially in those days, uh, you know, there'd be one guy riding the mole. Do you remember yeah. the mole crane? Now it's all tech cranes and jibs, but he would literally sit on the top of the crane. And as a little kid, it's like, oh, I'd love to do that. So I was kind of obsessed with wanting to be a camera. I should say I had many obsessions, like a lot of kids do that. They just, even if it was for a week or a month, I wanted to be a juggler for a month and I would learn. Or, you know, I wanted to be a ventriloquist. So I certainly can't, couldn't ever sing, but I could play a lot of instruments. So I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to be this, that, and the other. Um, so where was going with this? I'm going to lose track of several no, times. No, you, you were, you were, you were, because the point I was going to make to you was coming from such a, from such a performance background, I'm surprised you didn't want to become a performer, but it, you had ambitions to be a juggler, but they were short-lived. So why did you go behind the scenes? Well, like I say, initially it was the cameraman. I just wanted to be a cameraman. So I built, what I was trying to get to is I built a, basically like a toy TV studio I mean, I wasn't young, young at this point. I was like, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14, probably too old to be playing 
like let's play TV studios in my bedroom. But I built this little wooden TV studio and I had Christmas tree lights as lights and little Lego people as the people. And I built little Lego TV cameras and I would build sets. And this is why it's kind of an important part of the story. So obviously we just had the Eurovision. So when it was Eurovision time, when I was a kid, I'd build like my own little Eurovision set and I placed my Lego cameras where I thought they should be because I wanted to be a cameraman. So I was kind of, without even realizing it, I was sort of teaching myself about camera angles and where cameras should be placed, which is really important for set designers. Um, so this was all happening. And Paul Daniels would come and visit our house every time he was in Blackpool, three, four times a year, he'd come and have lunch or dinner or just come and have a coffee or something. So he saw me gradually growing and growing. And that, of course, he saw my little toy TV studio and then he would come back maybe a year later and I got a little bit better at making my cardboard sets. But I had no interest in doing that. I was all about the cameraman or maybe even subconsciously that I might become a director, maybe one day. But anyway, at some point he came in and said, you know, there are people who design these sets. I didn't know. I've never really thought about it. He said, you know, you should maybe go into that. And then fast forward a few more years and he came to me and said I was 15 he said, I'm doing a show for American television uh, filmed in glamorous Wandsworth at um, Hewitt Television. I wonder yeah. how many people remember Keith Hewitt. And he used to do, Keith Hewitt used to do a lot of uh, pop videos and TV ads. I think he was famous for the the chimps. the, the um, PG Tips. PG Tips, that was it. Um, so anyway, so Paul was doing the show at his own expense at Hewitt TV to then sell it to American TV. So he asked me to design the sets. I mean, I was 15 and it was a family affair, not that I was family with Paul, but it was a family affair because his mum used to make the costumes. His dad built the set that I designed. Um, and of course, it was, I look back at pictures of it now. So, oh, what was I thinking? But mm -hmm. I was at 15 work, working now in a TV studio. Um, so then after that experience, I thought, and by the way, with Paul, I did all sorts of other things. I designed his letterhead and his business cards and some of his illusions. And then way later on in my story, um, I did uh, his show at the Prince of Wales Theatre in the West End. And I did his last ever show at the BBC, which was called Secrets. Yeah, I worked on that. Did you? Yeah. God, I, I sound so rude not remembering this, but Wow. So you would have been in the studio then, right? Yeah, and at acting rehearsal rooms. God, how do I not remember yeah. you? With, no, with, with Ali and Gra Ali Bongo and Graham Reed and Barry Murray. Yes, that's right. I really only remember you from later in my career when I was like a grown-up set designer. I was still yeah. so young at this point. But anyway, going so that was my sort of Paul Daniels history. But going back to how it all developed with regards to becoming a set designer. So I realized after I'd done that thing with Paul that, you know, really, I should probably think about going to college. And at the same time, or throughout this period from being, like, say, 10 years old till going to college, I had really studied TV set design. I, I had scrapbooks, which I still have. And every time a new show would come on the TV, I would get my camera out. And this is before digital cameras. It had a roll of film in it. And I would take photographs off the TV, which you could do. I mean, they came out great. And I'd go to the, you know, the one-hour um, snappy snaps, develop them, and then I'd stick them in my scrapbook. But with, I would also draw, like, the ground plan and notes. And I did this for every show. And I have multiple scrapbooks like this of every show from, I guess, really it would be the 80s that I was doing that in. Yeah. 
So I was self-teaching myself in a way without even necessarily realizing. And I would also write to my favorite designers. And again, no email. I'm talking like on my mum's typewriter and send it through the mail. And set designers are not used to getting fan mail. So they would always reply. And, um, and some of them would send me their drawings and photographs. And others would say, hey, come down to the studios. I'll give you a tour. So initially, when I was younger, my mum would come with me. But as I got a little bit older, I, would, I visited so many people at York's TV, Granada, um, Pebble Mill, BBC Television Centre, of course. And that was really an education just now to I'd been there with my mum and dad. But now the set designers were showing me around and showing me how it's done. Um, so, again, it was a bizarre education, if you think of it. Yeah, and then, for sure. Sorry if I'm talking too much, Colin. You're not getting a breath in here. but. Um, then I, one of the people I really admired was a designer called Nick King, who was at Granada. Brilliant designer, did lots of amazing sets, but probably most famous for stars in their eyes, but did lots of other brilliant sets. Yeah. So I, I asked him where he'd gone to college, and it was Leeds Polytechnic when we had polytechnics. Now they're all called universities. Um, so I applied to Leeds Poly just because Nick King had gone there. And at that time, he was my, like, he's the guy I want to be, you know. Normal kids would want to be a football player or a pop star or something. I wanted to be, you know, a set designer. Yeah. Very weird. But anyway, so I got into Leeds, amazingly. So while I was at Leeds, I worked at the Leeds Grand Theatre as a stagehand. Um, and what was interesting about that, I'd grown up and been around theatres my whole life, but variety theatre when I was at Leeds Grand, I was working on operas and ballets and straight plays and musical theatre, and I knew nothing about that world. So that was an, also an amazing education. And I did that for nearly two years while yeah. I was at college in Leeds. And I was also then, during that period at college, going on the National Express coach from Leeds to Television Centre at Shepherd's Bush, and I would basically just get into the BBC in the days before security. I mean, they had the commissioners on the front, but I would walk up to the commissioners and just say, oh, I'm here to see blah, 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 insert set designer's name. Yeah. And they would know that name. And, oh, well, do you know where you're going? Yeah, yeah, main reception. I've been lots of times. Oh, okay, well, off you go, son. And I would just walk in. And I did that probably four times a year for three years. And I would just walk around Television Center and I'd walk in and watch, you know, a dress run of Heidi High or Doctor Who. I was, of course, I would try to get on top of the pops a lot and nobody cared. I would just stand there. I mean, I'm young. I was probably, I don't know, 17 or something at this point, And nobody ever questioned it. So can you imagine today yeah, doing yeah. that? So um, the only person actually who ever questioned me and kind of very politely threw me out was Biddy Baxter in the Blue Peter studio. <laughs> of course, I knew who she was because she was sort of on camera a lot on Blue Peter. Um, but yeah, otherwise, it was amazing. Like, for example, remember that um, there was a Victoria Wood series where Julie Walters was a waitress in a very fancy uh, restaurant. And she was carrying in soup and she kept spilling the soup. Oh, well, that was, it was Acorn Antiques, I think. No, it wasn't. It was that same series, but it mm. was that sketch wasn't Acorn Antiques. But mm. it became one of the most famous sketches. They often show it on, on clip shows. Yeah. Well, I was in the studio when they recorded that scene because of that sketch, because there was no audience for that show, yeah. for, for the sketches at least. So, I mean, I was, you know, six feet away from them when they were shooting that, which is amazing. But I, so I learned a lot doing that. Um, and then basically at the end of my three years at college, 
which was it was a good education, but not really, because I was learning interior design and I didn't want to design airport lounges or hotel lobbies or um, but, it, you know, I learned the rudimentary stuff like technical drawings and all that stuff. Um, but I mostly learned the best stuff. But when I was a stagehand at Lee's Grand Theatre and during the summer breaks, I would be a stagehand in Blackpool, which, you know, was I didn't learn a lot doing that, but it was fun. Yeah. Like try spending 10 weeks with Frank Carson and Norman Collier. I mean, <laughs> so anyway, I get to the end of my three years at college. And just before I finished, I'd, I was always writing to people. That was really my trick. And still to this day, I do it. And I'd written to Mike Hughes, who was Russ Abbott's manager, and another guy called Basil Soper. And Russ was at the height of his fame. Russ was a huge star back then. And he was doing a summer season in Blackpool. And they asked me if I would design, because I'd written to them, if I'd designed the set. So this was really, apart from the thing I'd done for Paul Daniels, which was very amateur, albeit an American TV show, this was really my first time just towards the end of my college term to, to like really design a show. And I really put a lot into it. John Bishop was the director. At the time, his partner was Kevin Bishop, and Kevin was around. So I just thought, this is it. I'm going to get straight into the BBC after this. And um, and ironically, what happened, well, sorry, also, no, let me, I'm going to be jumping around a bit here, sorry, because it was all really happening fast at the same time. But ironically, what happened is Paul Elliott, who's a theatre producer, he was the king of panto at the time. Yeah. Russ Abbott because of the pantos. And he'd been to see this show in Blackpool. And I'll very say it myself, my set was pretty spectacular. They threw a lot of money at it. And I didn't design it like a typical summer show. I designed it like a rural variety TV show. So it definitely got attention, my set. And Paul wrote me a letter and said, I'd just seen, you know, what you did in Blackpool and and come and see me in my offices in London. I might have a show for you. And I thought it would be a pantomime. And I don't, I never liked pantos. Even today, I'm not a huge fan of panto, but you know of course you don't say no I went down on the train and I'd done very little other than my college projects and um, met with Paul and Paul gave me Buddy the Buddy Holly story which is you know a musical it was an amazing uh, lucky break for me but I had no intention of designing musicals I wanted mm. to do TV um, and maybe I should come back to Buddy in a second but at the same time or at the very end of my college three years I got an interview to be an assistant designer at Tiny Tees Television. So all this was really intertwined. It was literally happening at the same time. So I went for that interview and it was very formal. You know, you had to wear a suit. And, and, um, and at the end of the interview, they said, you've got the job. This was to be an assistant designer for four months on a show. But I didn't know what the show was. Today, that would have been my first question. But I was young and stupid and mm. nervous. And, and so anyway... As I'm leaving that interview, I've got my job. This is like a week after I left college. I've got, I'm, I'm working in television and I'm designing a West End show. Nuts. But I, as I'm walking out, I said to the guys, um, well, what, what is the show I'll be working on? And they said, oh, it's a new Jim Henson puppet show. And I'd been obsessed with Jim as a kid as well. And what for a, for a brief time, wanted to be a puppeteer. So, you know, I, I just couldn't believe it. And Jim was still alive then. So I worked with that whole team and with Jim. And before we went on air, we were talking about Martin Baker. He, Martin was not part of that show particularly, but um, that I was really into that world as well. 
So um, now I'm losing track. Sorry, you need to get me back on track, Colin. No, you uh, you hit the ground running after after you left college. Uh, you got the the assistant designer job. Thumbs up, up at up at Time Tees. Then you, I think you landed this role with the Jim Henson outfit. Yeah, that's right. So so Time Tees was a really good place to start in the TV industry. Really good because it was very very small. And, you know, Geordie's a very warm. If I'd have gone straight to the BBC Television Centre, that would have been shell shock, I think. Mm. So it was great. I would recommend anyone start at a small studio. And it, we all, everyone knew everyone. And it was, it was really a good training. And then that finished. That was like a three or four month thing. And now I was now Buddy opened. So I was sort of doing it at the same time. And Buddy, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, was a mega hit, ran for 13 years in the West End. Um, we did 22 productions of it, I believe, around the world. Um, and although I was extremely happy to be doing that, it wasn't ever an ambition to do musical theatre. And it was fantastic, particularly the fact that I got royalties. I didn't even know what a royalty was. But in those days, and, and bear in mind, I was 20 when I designed Buddy, 21 when it opened. And I, I got one and a quarter percent of gross. Oh, hello. So today, yes. Today, uh, they have a, what they call a profit pool system, and it's designed to not pay the creatives as much as they should be paid. Yes. <laughs> More for the producer. But back in those days, yeah, you got a percentage of gross, and it was like amazing, like yeah. amazing. So I was really good money very young sorry you have a question backtrack me a little bit what was paul's involvement in buddy paul elliott paul uh, uh, yeah paul elliott he was the producer the producer with laurie mansfield with laurie yeah smith yeah so you know i was extremely young to be doing my first ever musical and bear in mind i'd never had a day's training in theater set design sure i'd done my three years as a stagehand at leeds grand but i didn't know what the hell i was doing but somehow i got through it and did it and a lot of people helped me along the way and uh, while we while I was designing it and you know it just was a mega mega hit and, and when Buddy shipped out to the US to Broadway I imagine yeah that's right did you well, go with the show to keep an eye on stuff absolutely but that's also kind of interesting so you know open in the West End and I then went back to being an assistant designer in TV because like yeah the whole theater thing was great but and especially the money but I want to be a TV designer and I'm still not doing it so, yeah, I assisted several people again. And while I was um, doing, well, what, basically what happened was the the London production of Buddy, Richard Morris, who was a designer at the BBC, mm. he was doing the gem game with Bruce when it came back, not the original, of course. And um, he'd been tasked to come and meet me at the theatre, the Victoria Palace, because they were going to do a, a Buddy segment as part of the Generation game. So he walked in and he was one of the people I'd really admired. So I just grabbed him. He thought he was meeting this grand, you know, West End set designer, not the kid I was. So I grabbed him as soon as he walked in and said, oh, my God, I'm such a fan of yours. And I start reeling off all these shows he'd done. And I think he was a bit blindsided. And I said, I really want to work at the BBC. So God bless him. He got me in then to the BBC as an assistant. And in those days, you know, there was, I believe there was about 100 designers on staff. and maybe 150 assistants. So I was now in that world, which was much bigger and scarier than Time Tees. And then while I was there, we did Broadway, the buddy version of Broadway, uh, on Broadway, I should say. And um, 
that was weird because I was working at the BBC, but then I left for a month to go to New York. I was still very, very young. Maybe by now I was 23. And I was working for a designer at the BBC who's since passed away, so I can be a little bit honest about him, called Dacre Hunt. No sliming rhyme. Oh, I remember Dacre, yes. Oh my. He was a brilliant designer, but a nasty man, to me at least, to me. And I think what it was is a lot of those designers in those days had come from theatre and would have killed to do the West End, let alone Broadway. So, you know, here was this kid who was assisting him and I just came back from Broadway and I was working with him on the Brit Awards and he was making me sweep the stage. And I don't, I've swept the best stages in the world. It's not like it's beneath <laughs> the stage, but, you know, he was really sort of bullying me on that show. And he, he, they had a system at the BBC where they had to write, the designers had to write a sort of report on the assistants. Um, I don't know, to keep you in check, I guess. So he wrote a report about me, which you're not supposed to see, left it on his desk. And some of the other assistants who were maybe also jealous of me, I don't know, uh, Xeroxed it and it was spread throughout the design department. I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was pretty scathing. And it, there was this famous line at the end of it that said, Andy Wormsley will not rest until he's the Andrew Lloyd Webber of set designers. And he was right. <laughs> he was. <laughs> but, so that, I'm prophetic. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, maybe I, maybe I deserve to be bullied by him. Um, I think I was relatively modest, but I mean, you know, there was certainly this bizarre thing going on in my head that I was this pretty successful theatre designer, but still a wannabe um, set designer, you know. Yeah. So basically around that same time, again, with my letter writing, I'd written to Nigel Lithgow and John K. Cooper and lots of other producers. And Nigel called me in to LWT. I'd, I'd visited LWT in my days of writing to designers who would tour me around the studios. But it was my first time going there now as a as a designer. Well, I wasn't a designer yet. This was really my first break was good old Nigel. And um, he gave me a show called Beatles Hot Shots, which mm. made quotes on that. And I don't remember. <laughs> no, I didn't know. No, I knew Jeremy, but that wasn't part of his coterie of his writing team at, at that time. He was also a lovely guy. You know, Paul Daniels was lovely. Jeremy was lovely. And these guys have the worst reputation, especially with the public. They were nice guys, but anyway, and br both brilliant. Jeremy was also a brilliant guy. I'll tell you what they were. They they got a reputation because they were totally professional. They mm. gave of their best every time, and they couldn't understand it when everyone else around them wasn't giving of their best every time. One of the reasons, I suppose, I got on with, with Paul as well as I did, because he, he could see that, that, you know, it glistened with sweat, but it didn't necessarily sing, but he could see the graph that I put into it. And I think probably that's... That was your success. They appreciated the hard work that you were bringing to the party. I mean, Jerry Moore, much the same. And I, I'll bet you uh, Bob Monkhouse was the same, was he? Mm, oh, sure. You always had to bring your A game to the party with Bob. No doubt about it. You could never rest on your laurels. Yeah. They knew more or less how to do everyone's job in the studio as well. So they would get frustrated, like you say, yeah, if something wasn't going right. But anyway, Beatles Hot Shots was a great show. It only did two series, but it was basically for young filmmakers with camcorders, not silly um, like his Beatles, uh, what was that show? You've Been Framed. It wasn't like that. It was people who wanted to make amateur films. Some of them were just silly sketches and some of them were quite arty films, um, sometimes even shot on like Super 8 film or mostly camcorders. And so um, he would do interviews in the studio and then show clips of the films. And um, so we were all young. All the people who worked on that show were young. 
there was a guy in the office who was a, a junior researcher called Edgar Wright. Edgar now is one of the wow. movie directors on the planet. And I remember Edgar very well on that show. We all, like lots of junior researchers were now big producers. And so it was, he was very good like that, Beadle, that he wanted to like nurture all of us. Even like, I mean, it was Nigel and John K. Cooper who gave me the job, but I would imagine they probably had to run it through, Jeremy. I don't know. Mm, oh, but for sure. It's a young team. So now I was in the, in the door at LWT and I was actually designing now, finally designing in TV. And then my second show right after was um, All Right on the Night 8 with dear old uh, Dennis Norton. And I did a bunch of those actually. And then um, what really helped me was I did a show called Ten Ball, which was a weird hybrid of snooker and pool. And all the famous snooker players were part of it. And there was a celebrity audience. And I did this very space age set. And that really sealed the deal. From that, they offered me Royal Varieties. And then I was I was Mr. LWT for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I remember. Um, forgive me. Feed my naivety. Because I know, I've gosh, the set designer's name was always the third before last on every television show I've ever watched before all the craft credits were, were rewarded with a credit on the roller. It was always designer, a director, producer, always. So yeah. what's the difference from my naive point of view between designing a stage set and a TV set or basically are they fundamentally the same? No, God, it's massively different. Like, so just now I'm designing um, Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz, which are both theater musicals. Yeah. And I just recently did a, a dating show. And, you know, I did the dating show, no, no joke, in one day, although I wouldn't tell the producer <laughs> that. Um, because, I, you know, everything now is on computer. I'm really fast at it. Um, but a musical is much, much harder because there's, well, with The Wizard of Oz, which is probably the hardest thing I've ever designed, there's 28 scene changes. And obviously we all know the movie. They're all very wacky locations and very creative, you know, um, scenes, basically. And you've got to figure out how all of those scenes come on and off stage, how the movement of the scenery and the choreography of it. Um, so it's much, much harder to do theatre. But my absolute favorite ever is when you have a TV show in a theater. So obviously like a Royal Variety or have not yet designed the Oscars. I've pitched for it a couple of times, but would love to do the Oscars. But I've done a lot of award shows over here and, and other TV shows in theaters mm. as I did in the UK. And that's the best to me, to be like in a theater, but you're doing a TV show. I, I love that. It's yeah, the best, best, of best of both. Um, yeah. So when you started, you were you were working with pencils and rubbers yeah. and rulers yeah. and drawing stuff out on paper. Uh, it strikes me that you've embraced magnificently the new. As a technophobe, I'm here to say to you, Andy Wormsley, you've embraced this modern technology, digital age for designing magnificently well. Thank you. I mean, I, I was always late to it. I was late to email, you know, I was late to word processors. I always catch on late, but then I do get into it. But yeah, I mean, uh, initially it was me with a pencil and paper and gluing bits of cardboard together. But as I started to get more busy in the UK, uh, then I had to have assistance. And at the height, you know, I, I bought an office in Richmond, wow. which maybe was a dumb thing to do, but I literally bought an office building. I think it was 200 and 30,000 pounds or something, which sounds so cheap now for a four floor office. 
but at the time I had a mortgage and you know but um at the time that was kind of a scary thing to do and I had probably it depends how busy I was it would fluctuate but maybe I would have like a six assistants and I was I'm definitely a control freak so it wasn't like I did a napkin sketch and went to the pub and left them to it I mean I was yeah. very hands-on but there's no way I could have done that volume of work in the UK in the 90s without a huge brilliant team of people helping me thank god one of whom um was Julian Healy who now has become a really big famous designer in his own right in the UK television uh and I'm so proud of him like if I'd not left um the UK I might have been very envious of jealous of him it could have been a bad situation because we would have been rivals but the fact that he's there and I'm here, I'm so happy for him and I'm proud of him. Um, it's, it's great. When you encourage people in the way that you were encouraged, that's very rewarding, isn't it? And 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 very satisfying. I get a lot of emails from students, which is what I did, of course, before email. So I, I had to mail a letter, post a letter. But now I probably, I just got one this morning, literally. But I probably get, maybe every couple of weeks I'll get one. And I always take the time to write back and try and offer a bit of advice or whatever. They always want to come and work in my office, which kind of goes back to the technology. Well, I don't have an office. I mean, I'm in my little office at home here. But it, so when I did move to the States, I that's when I embraced the, the CAD, computer-aided design technology, because I was still the first year or so in the States gluing cardboard together and doing pencil drawings. Yeah. And um, you have to join all sorts of unions when you come over here. And one uh, is the Art Directors Guild. And they, one great thing they offer is courses. So, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago now, but 20 years ago, they offered a course for a, a program called SketchUp, which is what I mostly use. And it's a 3D program. And I went on this course and the first, I think it was like every Tuesday night for a couple of months. So, so just one evening a week. And the first few weeks I was struggling and I really couldn't do it. I didn't even know what copy and paste was, which we do all the time, even when we're writing an email now, but I, did, I literally didn't know. So anyway, by the third or fourth week, it's amazing, just clicked. And I went home after the class and stayed up till probably four in the morning playing with it and like, oh my God, this is going to change my life. And it really did. So fast forward now, I don't, I rarely have assistance. I do it all myself. Um, sometimes on a bigger show, especially if the production's paying, I will have an assistant. Uh, but yeah, I, I do it all myself and I've got really good now at the, the software. I'm okay with Photoshop, but not great. I do my 3D modeling myself and very slick renderings mm. and all the drawings I mostly do myself. So yeah, yeah, it's funny how without that, I would need an office in the States and a huge team of people. Sure. Can I spin you back to uh, London Weekend again? Yes, um, what would have been um, the mo okay? Let's. You know, what was the most expensive set you ever designed at London Weekend? That definitely would have been a show that I'm sure no one remembers called Ice Warriors, which again <laughs> I was. I, I did Nigel. that. You did that as well. Yes. Oh, my memory is terrible. And you were there in Birmingham when we shot it. It was it was Manchester. Uh, when when we did Glads, I was in Birmingham. Uh, but for Manchester, Nigel said you don't need to be there um, because the 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 master of ceremony. Oh, it was it was. Uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten the the name of the the presenter. Danny Lovely Bear. lady. Yeah. Danny. Yeah. 
and there was and the ice master was the was the great master of ceremonies and all that malarkey um yeah and um but so i did it remotely and there wasn't truth there wasn't much to do there wasn't much to do at all gladiators were very hands-on but ice warriors wasn't any it wasn't good was it no, it wasn't. And by the way, Danny Bear is now a very glamorous, well, she was always a very glamorous, but very glamorous realtor or estate agent in Beverly Hills, I hear. I mean, I don't know her, but that's what I heard. Wow. That is Maybe that's not true, but that's what I heard on the grapevine. I think she definitely lives in, in, in America, at least. But yeah, that was a huge, huge budget and a massive undertaking. And I certainly had a lot of assistance on that. And Nigel not only produced that, um, but maybe Ken Warwick was involved with that. I think he was, because, of mm-hmm. course, they put Gladiators together. Mm. Yeah. But, and I thought Birmingham, because of Gladiators, you're absolutely right, it was Manchester in, a, in an arena, ice hockey arena. And, yeah, that was my chance. I'd always admired movie set designers. Never really wanted to get into that world because I hate early mornings. And if you're in that world, you're getting up at 4 a.m. every day yeah. to be on set at 5. But... Yeah. um. But yeah, I'd always admired those James Bond sets, you know, the villain's lair. So, and I'd always thought, oh, it'd be so fun to do on those. So that's how I approached the Ice Warriors. It was really like a villain's lair set. And it was massive. And, and I think in it was a in oh. mitigation, Andy. I've got to say, it looked a million, uh, probably cost a million dollars, but it looked a million dollars. I think it was a million pounds. And, you know, this is God. 30 years ago, 28 years ago, something like that. Mm. And it did look good. And I'm not saying that because of me. Uh, um, really, you know, Nigel doesn't direct anymore. And I think stopped directing a long time ago. But I always thought Nigel was a brilliant director. Good producer, probably brilliant producer, but really a good director. And he shot it like it was a movie. Mm. So, yeah, he made sure it looked good. Yeah, for sure. Lighting um, on was Alex Gurdon, who I'd never worked with before. And he also lit it very differently to most LE shows. It didn't look like an LE show, really. But yeah, what a shame. It was a flop. I think we did, I don't know, maybe 12 shows or something, and they aired four, and then they moved it to 11 p.m. or something like that, midnight. And then in the end, they pulled it off the air. So the last two or three shows were never even seen. No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. What a shame. So having established yourself then with Nigel along the weekend... Yeah. Um, what other shows would you have done with Nigel before maybe the move to the US, which I want to get to in a minute? Yeah, you know, I don't even remember. Because event when I first went to LWT, Nigel was not head of LE. That was John K. Cooper. Mm. So Nigel was more producing a lot of the big shows. But then Nigel basically took John's job at some point. That sounds bad. I don't think it was in that way, but... Uh, so John left and formed his own freelance company, which I also worked for John in that company, Talent TV. But um, but yeah, then so then Nigel was really the boss. So I wasn't really working with him at that point. He, he's too elevated. I was working with, I mean, he was around, of course, mm. but I was really being hired by the producers under Nigel at that point. Um, but a, an interesting Nigel story, by the way, I just remembered a couple of days ago, knowing I was going to talk with you, but Growing up in Blackpool, they always used to shoot TV shows in Blackpool in the summer, whether it was Seaside Special or all sorts of shows. And the show came to town one summer called Ultra Quiz, which you probably did. Yes. I, did. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, with Chris Tarrant. And um, and I think they went to a different summer resort each week or something. I don't really remember the show that well. But uh, Nigel was choreographer on that show. And they were 
in in the middle of a quiz show they'd insert a random dance number of course they would yeah so anyway i heard they were shooting this big number um on north pier in blackpool so i went down there you know i would have been i don't know maybe i'm 14 15 some 16 maybe something like that and any excuse to just watch tv happening so i went down there and just stood with the crowd and watched um nigel choreograph and he directed that number as well i don't know if he directed the whole show but certainly the musical numbers he did so I'm watching and I didn't know who he was. And I asked one of the crew, oh, who, who's the guy? He was obviously the boss. Who's that guy down there? Oh, that's Nigel Lithgow. And then I waited for the show to air and I saw his name and said, oh, wow, I watched Nigel Lithgow work. And then years and years later, of course, I'm working with him. And it's just weird how things work like that, that I'm like in awe of this guy I knew nothing about. I'm watching him work. And then years later, yeah. he becomes part of my life really it's fantastic yeah the directors of that uh, series of ultra quiz were uh, ian hamilton and graham c williams the producer was tony mclaren i'm showing off now and the executive producer was john k cooper and it came out of tvs actually yeah i remember tvs isn't that funny you know i can do that as well i can only do it with 198 mostly 80s and some 90s because that's when i was working in tv but 80s and 90s i can certainly tell you who the set designer was of any show <laughs> what studio is shot in probably who lit it you know it's amazing how we remember these things i can't remember like what i had for breakfast yesterday or names of people <laughs> i know now you know friends and, so but, when yeah. nigel moved to the u.s to do whatever he did Popeye. well yeah. it was pop and became american idol yeah so you went with him or you got the invitation from Nigel to say I'm doing this show do you want to go over and do it I love your impression well I'd, I'd always wanted to work and live in America like always even as a kid I was obsessed with America I remember when the this really dates me but the very first McDonald's opened it was in Leicester Square there was one McDonald's in England and my dad as a kid took me there and I was like oh my god I'm eating a hamburger you know, I was always into America, the culture of America. And of course, grew up with Starsky and Hutch and Charlie's Angels and all that stuff. So very immersed in America. Um, and of course, as I then became a designer, and, and don't forget, I'd worked here doing Buddy. And then one show we haven't mentioned, but I also did Blood Brothers in my British theater days as well. Mm. So I'd even done Blood Brothers in America. So as a young guy, I was kind of working here, not regularly, but I was exposed to working in America and the unions and all of that. Um, so, God, I was so desperate to be a set designer in America. So when um, I did Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and that came here, of course, and they used my set, but they wouldn't let me come and do it. And it really frustrated me. Then I did a show called Winning Lines, also for Salador and Paul Smith. And that came to the States. And Dick Clark, who's a very famous, was a very famous presenter and producer here. He produced it and hosted it. And I, I, I came, I was here when they shot it. It was my set, but I wasn't the designer. No mm. one knew who the hell I was. Um, and I even joined William Morris, the agency at that time in Beverly Hills. Very fancy. Because mm. I, you know, I've got, who wants to be a mil millionaire on the air? Now I've got winning lines. I mean, I'll get an agent. I'll I'll easily become a set designer in the States. And it didn't happen again. I mean, really, you need to be living here. You can't go back to London and expect they're going to, who did that set? I need him over here. Yeah. So I was very frustrated that I'd had these two near misses. So when we did Pop Idol, that then, of course, came to the States as American Idol, 
it was actually Ken Warwick. I had lunch with Ken in Richmond, where we both happened to live, mm. in a sandwich shop. I'll never forget. And I basically said to him, I, I have to go. Whether you like it or not, I have to do American Idol. I just have to. And so um, not, not Ken or Nigel, but certainly the American side of things were very big. They really didn't want me to do it. So I said, look, I'll pay for my own flights, my own apartment. I'll rent a car at my own expense. I'll, I had to get a visa, which meant an attorney. I'll do all of that at my own expense, but please let me do it. So they they begrudgingly said yes, and I did have to do all of that at my own pocket, mm. um, which again, nothing to do with Ken and Nigel. It was more the the network and the you know the other people involved. There was a lot of people involved with that show. Yeah. So anyway, but it got me here. Thank God. Yeah, let me let me take you back to uh, from America. Drag you back to Britain with yeah. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I just got to America, and you're dragging me back. Yeah, but Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I mean, that's got to be the most seen worldwide set ever because yeah, every well, country has embraced that format and used your design. Yeah, it's it's literally the most reproduced scenic design on earth, which I'm very proud of. And I say scenic design because think of shows like Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Les Mis. They were reproduced identically all over the world, but usually in 40 or 50 or maybe 60 countries. Hmm. So, uh, I assume something like Phantom of the Opera was probably built 60 times around the world, whereas Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was built 108 times, including Disney World and Disneyland. <laughs> as an attraction not as the tv show but as an attraction so how did yeah. you get that job with paul smith uh so i'd done a lot with salador and with paul lovely steve springford all these names are coming back now um a lot of before who wants to be a millionaire i'd done uh, jasper carrot shows i'm trying to remember um i did a stand-up special with jasper carrot and um trying to remember the early shows i did with salador but anyway, who wants to be a millionaire? He called me into his office in Covent Garden. He had this tiny, I mean, a, a nice office building, but his office, Paul's, was on the on the top floor in this tiny little 10 foot by 10 foot, maybe even smaller than that, in Covent Garden. He calls me in and he says, we're, we're, we're going to do a show called Cash Mountain. I think a lot of people know this story, which then became Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And he said, we're, we're going to shoot a pilot in three weeks. And then... It's going to go to series. It's not that the pilot's to decide. And then we're going to do the series like a month after that. But we have to do this pilot to work out the bugs. So, um, so yeah, I went back to my office in Richmond. And I, this is when I had my team of people, thank God. And we made that model. And again, before computers, we made that model. I actually have it. Oh, I just realized this is not visual. I was about to run into the corner here and grab my model and show you. <laughs> What a shame. Anyway, maybe I'll send you a photograph of that. And you can put it as the thumbnail or something. Yes, please. But, um, but anyway, I still have that model. I mean, this is a long time ago. And um, and I went back two days later with that model on the tube with my model and uh, and showed it to Paul. And he he just said, yeah, it's perfect. And the, and the thinking behind that design, by the way, because there was a very loose brief. I've always had very loose briefs with everything I've ever done. But he just said it can't look like a game show which would have been glitter and neon and chrome and, you know, can't because before Millionaire, that's how all game shows looked. Mm. Um, he said it has to be dramatic and have tension and, you know, they're playing for life-changing money. So um, I'd just seen a show at the National Theatre, which was in the round, and I 
so that was fresh in my mind, I guess. And I'd remembered a couple of in the round TV shows I've seen, one of which was um, Val Dunican's Christmas special. That will really age me. I even know who Val Dunican is. And yeah. um, I've seen it on TV in the days that I had my sketch pad, my sketch books, and I was, you know, taking photographs off the TV. So I went back and found my, my, my sketchbook and found pictures of that set was designed by a guy called Paul Trice at the BBC. Yeah. And it was brilliant because it was in the round, but the way Paul had figured out how to hide the cameras in the vomitories, we call them. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd seen the show at the National Theatre. I remember that set. I went and looked at my little hand-drawn sketch of Paul's Valdunican set, which is what really helped me figuring out where the cameras would go. Made this model, went back, and three weeks later, the set was built and in the studio at Fountain Studios. And we kind of knew it was going to be a big deal because no one had given away a million pounds. And also no one had done, I don't think yet, the stripped thing where you were stripped Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Maybe it had been done before. I can't remember. Can you think of? Not to my knowledge. And it was it was live, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, I know. And and so we, we sort of knew it was going to be a big deal, but here's when I knew it was going to be a big deal. I suggested very early on that we do a glass of water in a in a holder on the side of the contestant's chair. I'd got these chairs from a, um, a hair salon beauty supplier. So they're actually barber's chairs, those famous <laughs> chairs. Um, and I remember the Dave Allen show where Dave would always have his glass of whiskey attached to his chair. Yeah. So I just... I, you know, there was no great genius thinking behind it, but I said, let's do a glass of water attached to the chair. Well, anyway, on that very first show, not the pilot, but the first show, there was a nurse and she was playing for like maybe 30,000 pounds, which even today, but certainly back then, it was a lot of money for a nurse because yeah. yeah. I was unfortunately so badly paid. And Chris asked her the question and she picked up the glass of water. And I remember thinking, oh, good, they're using my... They're using my glass. I didn't know if they would ever use it. And she went to take a drink of water while she's thinking about the answer. And she was shaking and the water was going everywhere. And that's when I thought, wow, this like, you would never see that on any other game show previously. Like this is like a big deal, this show. And the, 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 the day after the first show aired, which I assume was a Monday, um, it was on the front page of every newspaper not just the sun and the mirror and the star but every newspaper and it was like there'd never been a show that big ever in the uk it's amazing and, that, and that's the phenomenon started and and you were there at the get-go oh yeah like literally three weeks before we did the first show and yeah. me brian pierce lit it brilliantly i did a lot most of my shows were with brian pierce really 80 percent probably and uh, he lit it brilliantly because Brian had a, a definite style. I used to make fun of him because everything was pink. I used to call him Brian Pink instead <laughs> of Brian Pierce. And, um, but for that, he didn't do pink because we were tasked with don't make this look like any other show on television. And, you know, famously, he did the thing with the moving lights, the very lights where they swoop over the audience, which now you see on every single show, but it never been done. It'd be done in music. Yeah. And even Brian had done it in music, but not in a game show. And then Guy Freeman was one of the producers. I always like to try and remind people because a lot of these guys don't get the credit. But what really made that show a hit was Guy Freeman. Um, Martin Scott directed the first, you know, the very first round when we were really creating the show. Mm. Jump Graphics, 
did all the on-screen, um, what we call the money tree, but all the on-screen when the question comes up, which was used all over the world. Keith Strachan, who I'd worked with a lot in musical theater, was a composer. He wrote all the music. And, and here's, an, maybe I shouldn't say this because Keith might watch this, but Keith got very, very lucky with that show because the PRS, I believe, pay you per, not necessarily per second, but maybe per, I don't know, 10 or 20 second chunk of music. So if you write music for any other show, there's a there's an opening title sequence with your music. In and out of the break, there might be five seconds of music and then the credits at the end. So you're not going to make a ton of money on royalties. But the great thing about Millionaire is, and this was Keith's suggestion, not to make the money just because he thought it was right for the show. But uh, Keith's suggestion was that the music was in underscoring the entire show. The music never stopped. Mm. But that meant he got tons of money in royalties tons um and good and good luck to him because he deserved it because the music was crucial so yes the set was a big part of that show but honestly without the set the lighting the graphics the music brilliant format though it was i wonder whether it would have been a bigger success without mm. those elements coming together and chris chris tarrant just brilliant Oh, absolutely. And it isn't it interesting that sometimes the stars don't align, like with Ice Warriors, and mm. sometimes the magic's there. I guess in your dad's day, your dad would have told you that he can work his act to a theatre uh, and do very, very well. And the next night, do not so well with the same act because yeah. the dynamics of the audience are different. They've got wet, yeah. queuing up outside. But something's just slightly out of kilter. So the, the magic's all got to come together with the wave of that wand. Absolutely. In in television, but really so in theatre. Most theatre show, most theatre musicals are flops. I mean, statistically, most are flops. So you've really got to get that lightning in the bottle thing to have a hit theatre show. I was very lucky that I experienced that twice so far with um, Buddy and Blood Brothers. But mm. uh, it's it's strange. I mean, like you say, we were a really good team on Ice Warriors. Not saying it wasn't our fault. Maybe we were all a little bit to blame because that thing was so overblown. Maybe I shouldn't have thought, let's do this like a James Bond villain's lair. And Al Gurdon shouldn't have lit it. So like, you know, maybe we we're all making that, pumping that show up to something it wasn't. Maybe if we'd have done it in a smaller scale, a bit more silly and well, it was very silly, but <laughs> a bit more, maybe it would have been a hit. So, yeah. I mean, Gladiators. Gladiators was very grand and big, but it was done like an LE show. So it was a mega hit. Yeah. Whereas we were trying to do a movie with Ice Warriors. So yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows what makes wonder, a hit. Let me, let me put this theory to, to you, Andy. With, with, with Glads, it was very three-dimensional. You could jump, go up and down. Whereas with Ice Warriors, you were very on the flat. There's only so much you can do on the ice for safety reasons. And maybe that was its limitation. Plus, uh, you know, no one doubts that the biggest audience or the biggest fans of Gladiators was kids Man. and would play that game in their backyard, perhaps with their mum's broomstick as the uh, the giant, you know, uh, pugil sticks. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But with Ice Warriors, unless they happen to be skaters, and some kids are skaters, but, yeah. you know, you couldn't go into your backyard and play Ice Warriors on the weekend. I've got still got the brochure for Ice Warriors. I've got the glossy brochure that was handed out where you could buy it in the audience. And I'm looking at the other day, actually, because I knew we were going to talk. It does look stunning. It's colourfully magnificent. There's no doubt about it. 
I always say it's really not a lot. Well, I, if anyone ever says, oh, you're so talented, I always correct them. I have no talent. I'm very skilled, very, very skilled. From that little boy taking pictures off the TV or sneaking into the BBC, I learned so much. So I'm highly skilled at what I do, but there's very little talent. There's very little talent in show business. There are exceptions, like currently, if I was going to be super current, maybe Adele. Adele is very naturally talented. Hmm. Most of us in show business, performers and behind the scenes, they're not talented. We just learn skills. Um, where was I going with that? Um, well, I did, while you're thinking, I'm going to suggest to you that I'm a shameless old bluffer that's got away with it. We managed to get away with it for many, many years. Not been found out. And the more we do, of course, the better we get because of just experience. But yes, absolutely. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I forget where I was going with that. It's a shame. But anyway, yeah, it, it's like I don't believe in talent. There are some talent, really naturally talented people, but very few. Yeah. So now your your talent in inverted commas then as yes, thank you. from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You've gone to America with Nigel. Uh, and really, you've established your roots there sensationally, I would contend. Thank you. Well, yeah, when the very, very beginning, that, you know, pop idol, which then came here as American Idol, it was very tough for me. I I don't know about Ken and Nigel. They probably had a much, I wouldn't say easier time. I know they had a lot of dealings with the networks and, you know, but for me, and the first series, it was just me. I think by second and third series, they were able to bring more people over, including Audrey Barnett or Barnett. Remember Audrey? Mm, I remember Audrey, yeah. It was Nigel's uh, PA for years at LWT. And yeah. then he was able to bring her and, and a lot of other people came over. But that first year or couple of years was very tough on me because no one, they were very envious that the industry, the TV industry. We So just before us, was the weakest link with Anne Robinson, mega hit. A bunch of Brits came over to do that. And then we came over and then we did, um, I forget the order, but I think we did So You Think You Can Dance next, which was a pretty big hit. Then we did, that was me and Nigel and a, and a few others from American Idol. Then me and Ken and Simon Cowell did America's Got Talent. And that was a mega hit. And then Strictly came over in the form of, um, what do they call it here? Dancing with the Stars. Thank you. Dancing with the Stars. And then other British shows came. So there were at the beginning, though, it was like a small invasion. And the people in the industry were not happy about it. They were mm. envious and they felt threatened. And so it was very hard for me. And, and people will not be named, although I'm sure they would never watch this because they're over here, um, were really horrible to me and cruel to me. Not Ken and Nigel, of course, not mm. not a lot of the people on the show, but certain people were very cruel to me. I can give you one example, a really good example that I often tell people, and maybe I shouldn't, but the show had never won an Emmy. We, we were nominated every year, but for years and years, American Idol had not won an Emmy. A show called The Amazing Race won every year. And we were the biggest show on television by a mile. So it was kind of weird that no one had won an Emmy. But again, perhaps it was this kind of like, who are they coming over and taking over the industry? Um, so, um, and I'd been nominated as well a couple of times. Quite a few of us on the sh show had, which was pretty amazing. But I was the first one to win the Emmy. Um, and then eventually, years later, the director and the lighting guy and the, and the host, everyone had won Emmys eventually. But I was the very first one. And nobody 
the morning after nobody picked up the phone or sent me an email or sent a bottle of champagne or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. And I could go for a list of names, but that to me was like, you know, and I was not, I'm not saying I needed those calls or emails or whatever, but it just struck me as like, you know, yeah, interesting. Do you, do you think that the British invasion at that time was because the Brits were so much better at doing those sh light entertainment, shiny floor shows, which I think maybe the American networks had lost some traction on? Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, you know, I, I incorrectly said Weakest Link was the first. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was the first. Mm. Then Weakest Link off the back of that. Um, and then, like I say, all the others that follow. But I don't know. I mean, the, the Americans are very good at award shows and music shows. They're really not that the Brits aren't. Mm. And it's funny over the years since I've been here, I watch a lot of British television from the States. I mostly watch British television. Um, and the Eurovision is a bit of a different thing because it's such a beast. But I watched that the other day, the whole thing live while I'm working away here. And, you know, it's so slick. So the Brits have got better at doing the big award shows and the and the music shows. Not that they were ever bad at it, but they've got more American, I should say. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. You know, that glossy, slick, like, I know the BAFTAs, I think, was last night, and I actually didn't see it, but I need to watch that on YouTube. But, um, yeah, I, I, are we, were we better at that? I don't know. Well, certainly there was no legacy of that. That, that kind of show had really vanished from the American networks. And I think maybe the, the, the skill set was had to be imported because yeah. you know, directors yeah. like Russell Norman were coming across to, to yeah. shoot multi-camera. Yeah. Uh, and you've gone to the days of Dwight Hemian and Gary Smith. Right. Who I, who I actually had a fantastic, I actually worked with Gary Smith. But when I so when I did first come here and I was working on Idol, of course I was knocking on doors and trying to build a career here, and a few people met me. A lot wouldn't, not that they were like rude about it. Maybe they were busy, whatever. But Gary Smith was one of the very first people to meet me, and I went into his office and I was very aware of his time. And you know, I was trying to sort of not waste his time, and I kept saying, "Well, you know, I should go. I don't want to waste." And he's like, "No, no, no, stay." So I was with him for maybe an hour and a half. Um, reminiscing because he had a quite a history of in england as well yeah Gary. but elstree elstree exactly yeah so he loved the reminiscing as much as i did um but yeah it, it was tough at the beginning and I, and I gradually got my foot in the door and as more british shows came over i think the network execs and other producers and production companies i think they were like well we can't fight this british invasion it's here whether we like it or not and actually in the end i think they did like it because like you say, we brought fresh ideas, really. And then Americans invented their own brilliant fresh ideas. Not saying because of us, but I think just there was a, a change in the industry and the style of television, yeah. just like there was in England as well. But truthfully, I guess they had to embrace you because you were delivering the figures. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. That, it's funny, you know, I often think about, uh, sorry to interrupt you, I often think about Noel's house party. And actually I've been... Somebody's been uploading all the episodes onto YouTube in the last three months. So I've been watching, I'll watch like four episodes a night, late in bed at night with my headphones on because my wife's asleep, laughing away. It still stands up that show. That show was brilliant. You probably yes. were. It. No, not enough I didn't. That was very much Charlie Adams's domain. Although 
the long-suffering Mrs. Edmonds was one, along with uh, Carol Abbott and Hilary West, was one of the principal vision mixers on that show. So many a Saturday night, I was sitting uh, alone in our house at Chessington watching her vision mixing Noel's house party. But you know, you lose sight of the fact that that was such a phenomenon, and maybe one of the first phenomenons which then led to those great shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which became national events on a weekly basis, a daily weekly basis. And of course, Ant and Dex Saturday Night Takeaway, they're, they're more than happy to tell you that it was really based on House Party. And I, I actually did Saturday Night Takeaway as well. The first couple of years before I left, and then they used my set for maybe eight years or something while I was in the States. I was nothing to do with the show anymore. But but yeah, I mean, House Party was amazing. And for your missus to, you know, do that live. And that show was years and years and years ahead of its time in terms yeah. of technology and um you know even uh michael mcintyre show now there's so many shows that steal from it because it was brilliant but mm -hmm. and yet i don't know if noel ever tried to sell that or the bbc tried to sell that to the states but it it never happened here, to my knowledge and certain shows like that just will not work in the states they just don't have our wacky sense of humor yeah and i'm not talking about Bobby, which is very wacky, but just other other segments on that show would never work in the States. It is and, and you probably know Ant and Deck came and tried to do takeaway here. And yeah, what... interesting. Some shows don't travel, do they? It's very interesting. Once again, it's the, the chemistry's got to be right, that the stars yeah. have got to align. Yeah. Um notwithstanding the fact that you've been a huge success, Emmy Award winning. Uh, designer from a television point of view how did you find yourself working on La these las vegas spectaculars in the big hotels oh, yeah so the first year year maybe year and a half i lived in la right next to cbs i mean literally across the street um and some of your listeners i'm sure have been there and seen this setup but there's a giant outdoor shopping mall which is gorgeous called the grove yes and right to that is cbs and a lot of the shows I was doing in those early days were at CBS. So I I didn't even buy a car for years. I would just walk. I could walk through the mall, buy whatever I needed, go walk to the studio 10 minutes across the street. It was amazing. Um, but um, and now I've completely forgotten your question because I went off onto a nostalgic tangent. No, no, I, no. I, I, you must pursue these nostalgic tangents with, with my absolute blessing. But um, <laughs> now I've, I've forgot what I was going to say now as well. So, yeah, what was the question? I thought it was a good question. You've thrown me. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. But basically, you're in Los Angeles and you're established there. You're opposite those studios, which I've been to once, I must admit. But now you're in Las Vegas. So how did you make the transition for, for designing for big hotels, Las Vegas Spectaculars? Yeah, you very nicely got me back on track. Thank you. So I had my little rented apartment there right across the street from CBS. And I've always loved Vegas. I used to come to Vegas on holiday in the 90s, like once every two years and see two shows a night for a week, like 14 shows. And I just loved it. I was never into the gambling, but I just loved the atmosphere. I mean, bear in mind, I grew up in Blackpool. Now, I'm not comparing Blackpool to Las Vegas, but there are some comparisons. It's a much better, slicker, glossier version, of course. But there really are some a lot of comparisons. So I did feel at home here when I came here on holiday before I moved here, I mean. And so anyway, so I'm in L.A. now and every excuse I could, I would go for the weekend to Vegas. Sometimes I'd go with friends. I even at some points would come on my own 
I'd literally come on my own for a weekend to Vegas. And for listeners who don't know, it's a four-hour drive from LA to Vegas, which is nothing. In America, that's nothing four hours in the car. Oh, I mean, it's you know London to Manchester, but here it's literally the next village along in terms of scale and size. So yeah, so I, any excuse to come because I just loved being here. Um, and then it was time to sort of, okay, I've got to stop. Oh, I think it was because I had visas and then I got my green card and I'd always planned on staying here forever. But once I got the green card, it was like, okay, now I really can be here forever. So I should probably not rent, but buy somewhere. And then I looked at buying in LA and at the time, well, of course, still, but at the time it was very expensive, whereas you could buy quite cheaply in Vegas. Those days have changed as well. But um, so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll buy a flat. So actually I bought what they call a high rise. So basically in a block of flats, think of Del Boy and his block of flats, mm. but, but very marble clad, gorgeous, like flat right on the strip in Vegas. I could walk out my front door and be on the strip in three minutes. So I, that was now my base, even though I was still mostly working in LA. And I just, sometimes I'd fly, but I always preferred to drive the quick four hour drive. Like I worked a lot at Granada in Manchester and I would love that drive from London to Manchester. You get, you can get a lot done in a drive if you're on the phone and stuff. So, um, so yeah, so I'm now based in Vegas. And the one thing I love, and I mean, still today, tw I'm talking 20 years ago, I've been here 20 years in Vegas now. And I love it because it has a huge showbiz community and LA television is very cold, very, very cold. Uh, like I was saying, my early years was cold, but just generally it's big business. It's huge money television in LA. So nobody's having fun. It's like, there are exceptions and I've done some fun shows, but you know, you'll walk in on the Tuesday, you were, you were there on Monday doing a rehearsal and I'm not talking about any specific show, just any show in Hollywood. And half of the people have been fired overnight. I mean, that's pretty normal. Wow. And it's very cold. It's very big business. There's a lot of producers, a lot of executives from the network. Everyone has an agent and all the agents are there. And it's just a cold, harsh business atmosphere. Whereas in Vegas, it's theater or, you know, be it, it not serious theater, of course, it's, it's Vegas shows, but there's over a hundred shows in Las Vegas. I mean, think about that. There's about 40 shows in the West End or 30 something, I think, and 40 something on Broadway in New York. Well, put those two, put Broadway and the West End together and there's more shows in Vegas. They're not all big. There's some mega shows, a lot of medium shows, and there's a lot of small one-man shows and little things. But um, so over a hundred shows in Vegas. So that means we have the most amount of musicians in America live in, in Vegas and technicians and costume people. And also you have a lot of performers that are based in Vegas that don't even work in Vegas. A lot of the cruise ship people are based in Vegas and they'll fly out and do their cruise ship shows and fly back. Every magician in America, more or less, is based in Vegas. I mean, throw a throw a stone in Vegas, you're going to hit a magician. So there's this fantastic community here um, where it'll be 10 o'clock at night and my phone will start going and it'll be, hey, it's Bill, Bill from the Blue Man Group. It's his birthday. We're all going to such and such a bar. And before you know it, you go to that bar and there's Cirque du Soleil performers with, 
uh, stagehands from this, you know, I mean, it's a fantastic social warm place. Isn't that interesting? Andy, it's come full circle, really, because when your your dad and your mum were in the business, there was the club circuit, which was that great community. And now suddenly you find yourself in Las Vegas with exactly that kind of show business community. I think it's wonderful. Everyone knows everyone and there's no social status to it. So as I'm going to do a massive name drop now, but yesterday, which was Sunday, David Copperfield was in my house having lunch. Now, I don't say that in a huge braggy way, but honestly, we all know each other here. There isn't this like, sure, he's a, a what? He still is, but was a massive star. But, you know, we all, it's just a community here and everyone knows everyone. So it's not unusual that I would know David Copperfield, honestly, or lots of other uh, performers and, and, and stagehands and lighting guys. And yeah, it, it's a great place to live. It's wonderful because Paul Daniels would be very proud of you sharing, God, sharing about, the table with David. No, I thought about it yesterday. I've, I've known David a long time and been to all sorts of places with him, but he's never been to my house before. And I did think yesterday, God, you know, Paul Daniels would visit my mum and dad in or in my childhood house. And here's David Cuffield in my house. I did think, yeah, it's kind of weird how it is a kind of full circle thing. But yeah, yeah Vegas is just the best place to live. It's it's awesome. I, I love it here. What designs then, as I've, I've, I've taken off enough of your time, I know you're busy and it's uh, early, early morning where you are. I'm sure the listeners are, are over it. No, I'm, no, absolutely, because this is absolutely fascinating. I always say I've had a very unusual life. I mean, really, very, literally born in a trunk and then Hollywood and Vegas and very bizarre. Well, once you've, you get on the treadmill, you've not stopped sprinting. Which and and to the fact that you've got the energy and the creative juices to keep, forgive me using the word churning, but churning out such oh, it's a sausage designs with nonstop creativity. It must be mentally exhausting. It, it is a sausage factory, honestly. But my thing is, I don't. You know, you were very, you really blew me up in that intro. But I do a lot of really small stuff. I, you know, I wish I was doing only giant famous shows, but I do everything and anything. Last year, I designed a movie theater for a guy who won the lottery in Florida. He was the biggest ever lottery winner, and he wanted a spaceship movie theater. And I don't know, he li- I think he go- oh, his assistant Googled me, and, you know, I don't know, Google set designers, whatever. And I was doing, I never met the guy, but I did Zooms with him. He was a waiter in new jersey and he's now i think he won like 300 million dollars and built built from the ground up three mega mansions all over the states i think anyway so yeah so i'll do anything that was a you know small fee small job but it was fun i've done window displays like window dressing essentially um so i will literally do anything i'm kind of a whore i guess or, or greedy but yeah, I just, I love to be constantly busy. I'm always ambitious. I'm always petrified of not being relevant as probably we all are yeah. or not working anymore. I'm very, very aware. I'm 56 now, you know, in the course of this conversation, I was like 12, 15, 18, I'm 56 now. And I'm very, very aware that maybe I've got 10 more years. I mean, I would go forever. Yeah. But, you know, you know how the industry is. They want the new young guy. Um, yeah. uh, bear, so, bear in mind, Andy Wormsley, you were the new young guy. 
No, it's funny, isn't it? That yes, I was there. What was that term they always used? Uh, not whiz kid. I forget what the term was. Maybe it was a very British slang thing for mm. for. Oh, you know, for a young person who shouldn't really be in the job because they're too young. I got called whatever that term was. I can't remember. I got called that all the time. Um, but yeah, now I'm an old fart, which is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I hope I got a good 10, maybe 15 more years in me. I'd love to, you know. The fear for me as well, being really honest with you and your audience, and I'm sure performers feel this more than anyone, but my big fear is I've been really lucky with four or five mega hits. And the fear is that they're all behind me and there's no more of them in front of me. Sure, I can still make a living and work, but my thing now is I just want one more hit. Theatre, TV, whatever it is, before the end, before I retire or die or whatever, you know, I don't want to be, oh yeah, he's the guy who did American Idol all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but what, you've underscored it really. I think it's that tenacious drive that you've mm-hmm. got still, which brought you to the fore right from the get-go. I, I, once again, I, I suppose I can flatter myself in identifying from your point of view, you've got to want it badly enough though, haven't you? Well, yeah. And I always say, you know, here's another sort of interesting thing that I didn't really mention and perhaps should at the beginning, though, you know, so I grew up with my mum and dad and they were, they weren't like mega successful by any means, but you know, they made a living. Then they divorced and I was purely with my mum and my mum was really struggling as a one parent, you know, parent. Um, she was in a show in at the Victoria Palace in London called Swing Along the Max with Ooh, Max Bygraves. Yeah. I was backstage at that show the whole time as a little kid. And, you know, it did seem extremely glamorous, especially for a fire eater to be in a West End show. She may may have been the only fire eater ever to do the West End. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but by day, we lived in a caravan in Crystal Palace underneath the big TV mast, ironically, yeah. If you think about it, where, you know, underneath that TV mast, and then I ended up doing TV. And she would, to make ends meet, she was cleaning the toilets in the caravan park. So by night, she's in a West End show, glamorous. You know, she was a very glamorous lady, yeah. visually. And then by day, she's cleaning toilets. And I remember coming home one day from school, and I had a very bad uh, education, because as they, when it was mum and dad, and then just mum, Whenever they did a summer season or they were moving around, I would move school. I moved school so many times. But anyway, I came home from school in, at Crystal Palace and um, my mom was cutting up cornflake packets and putting them in the soles of her shoes because she had holes in her shoes. And at the time, I didn't think that was, I thought, oh, well, my mom's really clever. She, she's cutting cardboard for her shoes. I didn't think of it, but it obviously stuck subconsciously. So I think it was moments like that that made me, I never cared at all about money until I did Buddy. And all of a sudden, money was flooding in every week. And now, as oh, I guess it is nice having money. I've never really thought about it because we didn't have it growing up. We weren't poor, poor, but we were close to poor. Um, so I think the drive comes from my mum, really, who has just really worked hard to like provide for her son and herself. And she was young when she was doing all of that. She also passed away pretty young. Um, and then also that I was exposed to having money, not millions, but for a 22-year-old in London making 
1,500 pounds, 2,000 pounds a week. This is a long time ago, and that was a lot of money. Yeah. I think then I really started to value, like, God, I'm, I became very ambitious, not necessarily for greed and money, but just I, I was petrified of being back in the caravan yeah. or me cutting up cardboard to go in my shoes. Oh, so, gosh. I can identify so much with what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> okay. We've got so much in common, including hairstyle. Yes. Oh, yeah. The people can't see, but yes, me and Colin <laughs> do look alike. Favorite book. Sorry, go is ahead. It, this is a rude thing to ask you, Colin, but do you ever uh, mention your age? Because I have no clue. May I ask or not? Oh, I, was, I was born in 1955, uh, which right. makes me 67 at the minute. I'll be, in June, I'll be 68. And what's interesting from my point of view is the year I was born, Bob, Bob Monkhouse was pretty much comparing the Royal Variety Show. Wow, amazing. You know. So close. And I you know, I only worked with Bob once. And with you, of course. And that was on the thing he did. It was called On Campus. It was oh, at Oxford yeah. University. Yeah. Oxford Union, yeah. There was no set to design. This is kind of a cool story, I think. But um, I, they, uh, Nigel, let's go again. Mm. Who directed that? Do you remember? I can't remember. I think it was Terry Kinane. Really? Wow. Yeah. So uh, I was brought in not to design a set because it was done in the, um, what's that room called? The uh, Oxford University... Oh, it's the, the Oxford Union debating room or some such, isn't it? Yeah. Gorgeous, ornate, gothic, amazing room. Mm. Very historic. And they brought me in to design a lectern for yep. Bob to stand behind. And that lectern had to look like it had been in that room for hundreds of years. But the real reason for it was to hide, not that Bob Monkhouse of all people needed it, but to hide a, a, what was not really an iPad because they hadn't been invented yet, but a very thin screen so that uh were you the only writer on that or was there a yeah. couple of no it was you... me bob and i so yeah, i believe with Nigel. Was feeding bob just the occasional thing which um maybe didn't even use your stuff no disrespect to you but uh, truthfully uh, behind the scenes secrets it was it was very well constructed uh bob had bob and i had put together the contentions and offered them to the students to put their own spin on it so pretty much bob knew what was coming yeah and so, it's so we had manufactured those answers uh which underscored the the style and aplomb with which he could make the responses with oh, such yeah. comedic effect Brilliant. and that was but that that's that's a trick of television because bear in mind it was an entertainment show rather than a other than a debate well, plus, of course, Bob, his whole career has sort of dumbed down his intellect when he's doing game shows and stuff, whereas here he was with young students, but obviously Oxford University, brilliant to young students. So he was really sparring with them, even though, like you say, some of it was premeditated. But here's the end to that story, which I think is awesome. So I go back to the UK now. I try and do it once a year, once every two years on holiday with my wife, who's American, and she loves it over there. So anyway, last summer, literally last summer, um, we were there and we always travel and rent a car and travel around. So we went to Oxford. She'd never been before. And I said, oh, I'll show you. I was telling her about this show we did with Bob Monkhouse. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if the room, the room's open. Maybe it's open. I can show you. It's a really cool looking room. So we go and it was actually locked. But then I went to the office next door and there was this nice guy. He said, oh, I'll, I told him the story. He said, oh, I'll open it for you. And he opened it. And my Now, I already knew this, but my podium is still there and still in use. Yes. It was built out of MDF to last one show. 
And I knew it was still there because on YouTube, occasionally you'll see some like Obama or some incredibly famous person. Sometimes they use my podium, sometimes they don't. But I'll see these hugely famous people behind my Bob Monkhouse podium. So anyway, the guy took his in so my wife could see the room and I could reminisce a little bit. And there it was. I mean, amazing that it's still in use. And the guy who showed me, who's one of the student union bosses, I guess, didn't even know the story. He thought it had been there for hundreds of years. Well, not hundreds of years, but it was so, part yeah. of the fabric. Yeah, yeah. No, story. I love that. When most of it's just thrown in the in the bin the morning after. There it is, still there. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Your stuff can actually, once it's been used, uh, the guys come in, derig it, and where does it go from there? Yeah, and I don't, you know, most of the time I don't mind that. I guess some people it upsets them a little bit. Um, I don't really mind it, but the other, another nice thing is uh, I did lots of series of um, American Idol with, we had a new set every couple of years probably. So I did lots of different desks, but the American Idol desk is kind of a famous thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, and one of them is in the Smithsonian over here, which again, a lot of British people might not know a lot about the Smithsonian, but basically it's a, it's a series of giant museum buildings in Washington, very, very prestigious. You'll have, you know, not, it's not just entertainment stuff. Of course they have the, um, what was the, um, the moon, the first, the moon landing. What was that ship called? Oh, they have uh, the oh yeah. There was Apollo 11, the Eagle landed and it yeah. was the Columbus was the, the orbiter. Um, yeah. Uh, and 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 the and the and, well, yeah, the, the three man capsule was the only thing that came back. The Saturn V rocket was a great twenty story edifice which took off, and only a thing that could hold a, a little a conical thing which could hold three astronauts came back. That was the irony of that. So you have things like that is in there, and all sorts of historic things. But you also have a few entertainment things like um, you know Dorothy's red shoes from the Wizard of Oz. A couple of Jim Henson's early Muppets are in there and, and my desk from American Idol, which is pretty cool. And it wasn't because they wanted my desk. Of course not. It was because it was iconic because of the show. Yeah. But I'll take yeah. it. Something oh. I designed for the Smithsonian. Very nice. Smithsonian don't get better than that, does it, Andy? It's pretty good. Yeah. I don't have anything in the, uh, you know, the British Museum or I was, you know, I was always very, um, pissed off if i can swear a little bit about the fact that i was never ever nominated for a bafta or an rts or anything in the uk not saying that you know i was such a genius that i deserved it but uh, you know who wants to be a millionaire perhaps could have at least been nominated i didn't need to win um and even a couple of other shows but especially millionaire so it's always like you know a bit I mean, in that to be fair, also in those days, it always went to drama. The set design award always went to drama, and I believe that's changed a lot now because Julian Healy, who I mentioned earlier, who was one of my assistants, is now a big designer. He has won BAFTAs, so which again makes me happy because it's kind of a little bit through me that he won his BAFTA. Only a little bit, but you know, Brilliant. so I, I have a little tiny bit of that award is mine. That's Fantastic. How I, that's how I feel. Um, Andy, you have been a joy to talk to, and I really appreciate your time. You've got a website uh, which my listener can click onto to have a look at some of the marvellous sets that you've designed, because your website is very thorough and very extensive, beautifully put together, if I may say. So what's your website, sir? It's uh, it's my name, so it's www, which I guess we don't say anymore, but uh, andywarmsley.com. And spelling is it's an odd name, Warmsley. 
and remind me after this is one quick thing I want to say, but um, Wormsley is W-A-L-M-S-L-E-Y.com, AndyWormsley.com. And uh, anyone who's into Instagram, um, Andy Wormsley Entertainment. But the thing I wanted to say is the last sort of 10 years or eight years of my career in the UK, I'd never used my name, which I sort of regret now. I had these before my ambitions of moving to America, really. I had ambitions of building a design company and that might do opening title sequences and graphics and um, on, you know, with the LED screens, the content, and, and that maybe I'd have two or three set designers in this company. So I formed this company in this name, which was A1 Set. So you'll watch a lot of these massive shows I did and the credits come up and it says designed by A1 Set. Yes. Uh, what I was trying to do is I don't want people to think of my name. Let's, they want to hire A1 set and it might be me or it might be Julian or someone else. Or, or, so that was the thinking behind it. I a little bit regret it now only because I guess a lot of people don't know my name in the UK. So they, they would probably, even people listening to this go, oh, I remember A1 set. I know, I remember seeing that name roll by. Mm. Yeah, me yeah. too, me too. Uh, um, you are an absolute inspiration, sir. Your work I, ethic is phenomenal, which I admire enormously. Um, uh, someone once, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, once said, uh, uh, "You don't have to be uh, the best person in the room, but you've got to be the hardest worker to be successful." And uh, and you encapsulate that beautifully. But you know, not only are you the best person in the room, but by God, you do the graft. I'll just correct you slightly. I mean, both going back to my big, you know, 90s career in television in the UK, I was definitely not the best designer by, by a mile, but I was absolutely the most prolific, maybe only for like a four or five year period, but I was the guy for, for a few years, which I'm really proud of, you know, really proud of. Good, good man. Congratulations for everything you've done. Thank you for all the, the, the visual magnificence you brought to our screens. Uh, it's been an absolute thrill for me to chat with you and reminisce oh god i could reminisce all day it's a part of getting old unfortunately <laughs> we have been listening to the remarkable the unstinting the unflagging creative wonder that is mr andy wormsley thank you andy thank you